brought to you by Penguin. We were there one time in LA and we were staying at the Sunset Marquee and we saw Mike Tyson sitting on the bonnet of his limo with Naomi Campbell and he started singing Cruel Summer as we walked towards him and we thought, how does he even know that song? But obviously he did because it was played all over America. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Now, this is the place where leading authors reveal how they get creative by choosing a handful of objects that inspire them. Just to mention that, in these challenging times, we are recording remotely rather than a soundproof studio. So apologies for any background noises. My kids have come back from school. Our eight-month-old Staffordshire Bull Terrier puppy is probably going to chew on something while we're doing this. So if you hear the background noise, that's what it is. My guests today, because we have two, formed their band in 1981 as the punk scene started to make way for new music. They've sold a staggering 30 million records and still hold the Guinness record for achieving the world's highest number of chart entries by an all-female group. Their new memoir, Really Saying Something, goes from their early days of living in the semi-derelict former Sex Pistols rehearsal room, that must have been fun, through to massive chart success and sell-out world tours, culminating, of course, in a packed set at last year's Glastonbury Festival. You know, when we could all gather together. It is, of course, Sarah Dallin and Karen Woodward, otherwise known as Banana Rama. Sarah and Karen, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi, Nihal. OK, here's the kind of generic... There's two of you, but there was once three, and there was three again, uh, of course, to come back for a tour a few years ago. So a threesome, but now we're talking to you guys. That's cool. Now, uh, one thing was interesting. I was actually looking at your old Top of the Pops performances. Right. Lucky yeah, you. No, this, is, this is how I wild my... Nothing to do with the interview. It's just something I like to do on a Monday. Um, and I was looking at Shy Boy, and, and I was looking at you, and I was wondering, okay... You were living in an, a pre-social media age and wondering if you had had Instagram, if you'd had social media there, which one of you would have been constantly on it, do you think, at the two of you? And not me. It's not, not me. me at all. Not me. Actually, when there were three of us, it would absolutely have been Siobhan. <laughs> <laughs> who, even when we did tour with her a couple of years ago, we did a one-off sort of reunion tour, constantly checking herself on social media. <laughs> I'm sure we would have been excited by it. Uh, it's. I'm quite pleased that we are older and wiser and we don't feel... Because it's so... I mean, the anxiety young people must feel, it must be just terrible. Well, the, yes. I mean, to actually look a certain way and have a certain shape and I think the pressure is massive and um, it's much nicer to be old and not feel the pressure to post pictures of yourself in underwear. Having said that, it would have been nice to have lots of young pictures of us rather than lots of older pictures of us. <laughs> yeah, but there you go. But, but what were the pressures then? Because it's not as if you lived a life without pressure. No, I mean, I think it very much back then and even now, it, you know, we, we sort of were up against a man's world, particularly in the music industry. And it, I think we felt for a long time it was like a battle we were fighting to keep our heads above water and to be treated the same as a male rock band, which is sort of what we were in spirit. And um, to get maybe our, our talents taken more seriously, we had to work doubly hard. Yeah. How difficult was it to 
to have a voice that was taken seriously. I know that Pete Waterman said that you guys, I don't know if you use the word difficult or not, but that's always oh, a euphemism for having yes. an opinion. That word again. Yeah, I know, it's yeah. ridiculous, right? But I mean, that's that's a euphemism, right? For having your own mind. That's exactly what that's it exactly is. That's exactly what it is. I just think it's if you're difficult, it's because people can't take advantage of you and because you want to steer your own ship. And that's so wasn't allowed in the 80s and kind of still really isn't. I think people want to put you in a box and this is what girls do and this is what, you know, they don't like to be confronted by someone who has an opinion. And we got on with it because we just didn't, you know, there were three of us, so we were quite uh, strong together. But I think independently we were the same and... um we had in, in the past been called surly, aggressive, all sorts mm. of things. And it's just standing up for yourselves. I mean, they wouldn't say that to Noel Gallagher. And quite frankly, it's quite insulting that if you have an opinion because you're a girl, somehow you're termed as difficult. I mean, didn't they know anything about you? I mean, you you weren't put together by some kind of Swedish Svengali, were you? <laughs> Certainly no. not. I don't think many people looked that deep into the group. They just saw three girls who weren't playing instruments and just thought somebody's behind them and somebody's put us together. But that's not the case. And I remember being asked um, two albums in, have you ever thought about writing your own material? And it's like, yeah, from the from the get-go, actually, <laughs> if you've done your research. I think it's just the way that women are, are perceived. They're, they're not as serious as men. They're not as... And particularly making pop music where I would say that a lot of bands male bands make very poppy songs but if you put a twanging guitar on it it sounds you know it's cool but if you're just doing harmonies and and the same type of um, melodic songs and you're a girl it's fluffy and lightweight. You had male allies as it were I mean Terry Hall was one I think we could describe certainly and, and Paul Cook tell us about meeting them and the experience and kind of what they gave you and what you gave them. Well, Karen and I met Paul Cook when we were living at the YWCA. I was um, at the London College of Fashion and Karen was working at the BBC. Uh, we just met him in a club, must have mentioned where we lived, and he, he came round to the hostel one Sunday morning and his name was announced over the tannoy. And we sat up in bed and we thought, not Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, surely not. <laughs> and, and we went, we, we were like so excited. We were racing, racing, racing to the top to... of the stairs, you know, sort of a bit like a cartoon where you slow up as you get to the top so as not to look too uncool. <laughs> and and sh- sure enough, there he was and wanted to take us out for lunch. And, and he just became like a really instant friend. And so much so that when the YWCA was closing down, we had nowhere to live. He asked Karen and I if we, we wanted to live in the old Sex Pistols rehearsal room that was the office of Malcolm McLaren and uh, it was an absolute hovel, but it was free and it, since we had no money and nowhere to go, that was a great... And it was in the West End. Yeah. I mean, it was in Denmark Street. Oh, wow. Guitar Alley. Yeah. You know, it didn't really yeah. matter that we had nothing. We just loved the vibe of the place and being there and we'd come in and smash around on the instruments, the guitars and drums after we'd been out and it was fantastic. He was very instrumental in the creation of he the group. He had the contacts and he kind of suggested, even though we probably, the three of us at that point, thought, let's get a group together. Mm. He was very much, he had the contacts to, to book the studio and get the people down there and he helped produce it. So the demo was Well, also he knew him. he could sing because we used to... Just yeah. sing backing vocals. Sarah and I used to sing backing vocals a lot when they were rehearsing, um, when he was rehearsing with his band he had with Steve Jones. So he, he certainly had the idea of getting us in a studio. What was his energy? 
He was very laid back. Well, <laughs> because he'd fantastic. done it before. Okay, what what was his lack of energy? Yeah. Well, he'd done it before, obviously, <laughs> yeah. with the Sex Pistols. So he'd been through all the record company thing, and and I don't know. He just really looked. It was after like a us. sort of guiding hand. Yeah. He he seemed very protective and um, encouraging, and and he was just an all round sort of good person to have around, like a big brother, really. Did you? Uh, this is, I hope, uh, not a patronising question. Did you know what you needed to be protected from? What's a patronising oh, question? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I've got a whole list. I've got a, a cool list and a patronising list. I'll go through the patronising ones. I'll, I'll put them in uh, intermittently. Yeah. Did we know what we needed to be protected no, I from? No, th- I don't think we knew anything. I we think so, we were we, very naive. Right. Yeah, we signed our first deal with no advance, mm. so, albeit a uh, one-off singles deal. I just think we learned as we went along and we had never been to stage school. We had no experience. Our first Top of the Pops was mind-blowingly bad. <laughs> I tried to find what's your first. What was your first? Uh, Is that with Fun Boy 3? Ain't what you do. Right, okay. Yeah, right. shuffling from side to side, <laughs> hiding behind our fringes, didn't know which camera to look in and talking to each other under our breath halfway <laughs> through. It's a shocker. It was an yeah. absolute shocker. But Karen and I had just left school virtually and there we were on Top of the Pops, the programme we'd watched all our lives growing up. What was central London like then? That kind of that the energy in the, the of Soho and other Soho was just amazing. Great. Yeah. I mean there were just so many clubs and obviously we were of the right age to go clubbing. And and just there were clubs where it was just one night here and there's another night there and then there's house parties and warehouse parties and it was just a really buzzy place. I think the there was nightlife. a huge community for yeah. young people yeah. as well. I think it was there were loads of squats, loads of youths, youth that lived in that particular area. So you just sort of walked out your door and you're with loads of young people. I don't think it's particularly like that now because I don't think necessarily that Soho exists no, anymore. No, it's far too expensive. But you can't get anywhere yes, near exactly. it. Yeah, you can't get anywhere near <laughs> it. I mean, you really couldn't have a pad in Soho unless you had incredibly rich parents as a teenager now. But there was a huge vibe then. I mean, you know, we went out clubbing and we'd bump into sort of Boy George and Jeremy Healy and then people who he had the squat on, was it Great Titchfield Street? Yeah. So wow. a lot of people were, were living sort of within a walk of all the clubs in the West End. So it was a, a, a proper community. Yeah, and everybody dressed up. You, yeah. You'd go to all the markets and buy all these secondhand clothes and it was very much to make your own outfit and it was, it was like an occasion. It was really, you know, we were on the tail end of the Blitz because we were yeah. just left school and... and um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was exciting when you went out. When you mentioned a, a squat on Great Titchfield Street, for people listening all around the world, so the, I mean, that's <laughs> like having a, a, well, it's like having a kebab van in Buckingham Palace. I mean, there's no way you could have a squat on Great Titchfield Street now. I mean, there's just no question. I mean, it's almost like... Well, we knew loads of people who lived yeah. in squats. It in was Soho. kind of the done thing wow. when you were young. Yeah. Mm. That's yeah. That just that just couldn't happen now, could it? I mean, the gentrification no, of that no, is... No, it wouldn't. So was it... Because, of course, there was there's an intersectionality of music, of fashion, of art. And did you feel all of that energy all happened simultaneously around you? Yeah, I think, I think we felt that through the whole 80s. I mean, through the 80s, even as we sort of grew as a group and developed our careers and moved through sort of different sets of friends maybe but we were always always gravitated towards quite artistic people and you know later in the 80s we were friends with the likes of Lee Bowery and wow. 
John Maybury and and so it was a, a whole new set of friends but still very creative and in, involved in fashion and film and art and the arts. And what was the dark side of it? I mean, if you think about like an equivalent thing going on in America at, slightly before that, but Studio 54 or something, and then people came out and said, oh, look at how glamorous it is. But then, of course, there was a dark side to it. Was there a dark side to Well, I think for us, particularly in the early 80s, we were just, it's not really naive, but we went to clubs to dance and we used to dance like maniacs <laughs> and people would end up swinging us around, you know, on their shoulders and people would oh, they must be off their face. They must be... It's like, no, we just... Just enthusiastic. Just enthusiastic. <laughs> and, yeah, we liked the odd vodka. But, I mean, that was... It wasn't really an innocence, but that's all we needed to get going. I mean, that was the fun it side It was music and... Yeah, the yeah. music, absolutely the music. And whenever we heard a great track in a club, we would we would say, right, who's... We, what did we hear? Um... Imagination, body talk, yeah, wow. and we're like, that is so great. Yes. And we must. Who's, who's yeah. produced that? So we'd find the producer, and that was uh, Steve Jolly and Tony Swain. And then we went to them to, to do our first album. Yeah, Can't yeah even part remember. of part of the first album <laughs> and part yeah. of the second album. And then we heard the Dead or Alive track. You spin me round like a record. And then we decided we had to track down those producers and that happened to be Stock Ekin Waterman. And they were quite early on in their career, really. Yeah. And then became a bit of a sort of pop production line. But when we first went to them, it was hugely exciting. Yeah. Where did the confidence come from? Well, that just came with practice, I think. Just. Well, also because I think we we had a lot of hits and then we had them worldwide and then Cruel Summer was top ten in America and it's like, wow. That's massive, yeah. You know, that is quite People cool. We were are. about 23 and mm. it was just, that was amazing and people knew who we were. We were there one time in LA and we were staying at the Sunset Marquee and we saw Mike Tyson sitting on the bonnet of his limo with Naomi Campbell and he started singing Cruel Summer as we walked towards him and we thought... How does he even know that song? But obviously he did because it was played all over America. Okay, look, we we definitely want to get to your first object because it's traditional on this podcast that we ask our guests to bring along objects that have inspired them. Now, you've chosen The Sound of Music uh, film, the the Moomin's book, uh, Let's Stick Together by Roxy Music. (laughs) But first, and for younger listeners to the Penguin podcast, this is what's (laughs) called a cassette Recorder. Let's explain. Why have you brought a cassette recorder? Why is that important to you? It's hugely important. When Sarah used to come to my house virtually every night of the week, we would record ourselves singing, um, making up plays, interviewing each other, not with any thought of a career in any of those things, but it's what we did. And we, we recorded on the cassettes and... Um, my mother used to play. We would work out all the harmonies yeah. beforehand and then I guess it was like early karaoke. But yeah. And then we just loved playing it back to people and, uh, yeah, it was a very strange... I know, it's very odd. My <laughs> mum played us singing Barbara Streisand's Evergreen to all her guests because she was so proud of it. That's amazing. <laughs> she thought we were brilliant. It actually brings a tear to my eye yeah. when I hear that because we were about 11 and that's like, that will always stay with me, yeah. that moment. But, I mean, it was a day where you had a, a seven-inch single as well, so we were particularly fond of doing B-sides because yeah. they weren't necessarily the ones you'd hear on the radio. The banging we, man, Slade. Yeah. Yes, we loved a bit of Slade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Prior to that, we'd mostly shared albums and singles. We, yeah, the one of us share. would buy it and we'd both own it. Yeah. But um, when it came to Roxy, we both 
bought all the gatefold sleeve double albums or whatever that opened. The, and you would they just were read every last, you know, cover note and yeah. look at all the pictures and just... Yeah, it was every really, word yeah. of every song. Yeah. We, I think we knew every word of every and song. And I think the fact that you had to save up your, you know, Saturday job yeah. money and then because we didn't have in that much money, we would obviously buy it together and share the album. Yeah, it, it meant so much to you, I think, rather than now you can just... You know, listen to it for free. So what tribe do you think you belonged to then? What was your teenage tribe? We were torn between two tribes, I think. Yeah, because we punk loved, funk. Yeah, we <laughs> loved funk. But then obviously punk came along as well. And that that was... That was an attitude as much as anything. It was anything. an attitude. And also there were a lot more female yeah. artists at that point. Susie Sue and X-Ray Specs, who I loved. And a way of um, expressing Patty yourself. Smith, yeah. yeah, Debbie Harry. That, that I think that spoke to us because it was it seemed very English, very British, and uh, more accessible. One of the things you said in the book, and it goes kind of back to uh, you know meeting, having to well, not having to sit and have dinner with someone from Billboard because you chose not to, um, <laughs> but about being nervous in interviews and that you had had no media training. Mm-hmm. You know, where did those those nerves come from? Because you were you were confident young women. In certain situations, we were okay. But I hadn't really had much training in being sociable. Yeah, it was a shyness. I mean, you can't just walk into a room and start talking about yourself if you're shy. It's just, it's just something you learn not to be shy. We'll have to deal with that. And there's no point in obsessing over it because there's nothing you can do about it. Was it uh, those times when you were kind of putting on this this mask to try and get through it? Were you a gang that essentially protected each other? I mean, because you, you're post-Paul Cook at this stage, right? Or people that are going to protect you. Yeah. You're out there on your own. We we were a bit of a little gang. I mean, the fact that we're there, you know, we, were, we weren't singly. I, I, you know, again, there's certain situations where I sort of, in particularly in hindsight, look back and think if I'd been a solo artist or put in that situation on my own, how would I have coped? It would have been incredibly difficult to come to cope with some of the, quite frankly, sexist and ageist. Ageist, well, ageist as we got older, but physical, physical. You know, I mean, you don't want to make make a lot of, but people coming on to you as a young girl, which you don't really wouldn't have known how to deal with as a single person, which as a group we could laugh off and just go up against it. But I think there's, you know, those serious issues. Obviously, a more more enlightened people are more enlightened now, and more likely to step forward and say something. Well, but only we recently, sort of stuff and we didn't say anything. Yeah, I mean, Me Too is, is yeah. relatively speaking a very recent phenomenon. Yeah. It but. is, and and thank goodness because, but it still hasn't changed no. that much, to be honest. Because there's hundreds of years <laughs> of that sort yes. of uh, male patriarchal sort of yeah opinions and views, and that's really hard to change. I think because we were brought up in the 70s and we were used to watching sexist, racist, homophobic television. Yeah. Mm. So you almost, it was so much part of your life that you just kind of got on with it. But you it might, you it, almost you expected absorb, it. Yeah. You absorb it because yeah. that, that's what you see on TV. It's almost you, like it's normal behaviour yeah. to, to be sexist. Because, yeah. of course, you couldn't go and, it's not like you go to HR and get, get someone fired for this behaviour, is it? No, exactly. You just had to um, oh, just, deal with it. I mean, you didn't moan about it. It's just 
you just got on with it. But it's always there. I know everyone who's slighted me. I know every kind of, you know, come on. And, and it was like, wow, that could have gone so much the other way if there hadn't, have, you know, if you've been if you've been on your own or whatever. Yeah. It's, just, it's really Scary hideous situations. to have, have had to have dealt with that. So, And I think, you know, the good thing about the internet is that it brings to light all these things and people do get called out on it, which is the good positive side of the internet. Absolutely. Okay, so in one of the clumsiest segues ever, listen <laughs> what we've just been talking about, wow, this is weird. Let's move on to your next object, which is a film. Now, why this? The Sound of Music. Because for me, that was a time of innocence, right. I think. It, it makes takes me, me cry when I see we it both every cry. time. Really? I last watched it. Yeah. I last watched it last Christmas with my son, who'd never watched it, and even he had a tear in his eye <laughs> at Edelweiss. <laughs> oh yes. And Edelweiss. I was actually sobbing. And it doesn't matter how many times I've watched it, it reminds me of being probably the first time I remember actually singing and being thrilled at singing at the top of my voice. I had the songbook to play on the piano. We All the cousins, when we had get-togethers, we'd sing all the songs. We went to the cinema as often as we could to see it for a period of years. It was obviously always coming back. Mm. And it still fills me with absolute joy. We did a a video based on it back in the 80s. Oh, God. Because we all loved it. Yeah. Cheers then. But, yeah, I, I think that's when we were sort of talking about our childhood. I did get quite emotional because there's that sweet innocence that you have as a child which you can never quite recapture as you get older and, you you know, you have things happen to you or just around you and just growing up. But I loved that just pure joy of singing I just wanted to be but the more you watch it the more you see I think in it because when I made Tom sit and watch it I know he thought oh for god's sake some singing nun thing coming on but he said he didn't realize it had a serious side to it which obviously it did with the Nazis and of course when I was little I don't think that meant anything to me (laughs) when I was sort of five or six years old I just wanted to spin around in, in a homemade in dress. a homemade dress on the top of a mountain, singing "The Hills Are Alive." <laughs> <laughs> so good. Okay, now look. Um, speaking of film, uh, previously you wrote a song, of course, about a, a certain uh, rather famous Italian American film star. Now, there's a great moment in your book where life really did imitate art, and we're going to have mm-hmm. a listen to that now. Karen and I were big fans of De Niro, and The Godfather Part Two had recently been shown again on TV. Most of the guys we knew were obsessed with it, endlessly quoting all the iconic lines, so we decided to use his name. The final track didn't sound like Grace Jones or Frankie, but was a great tune nonetheless and was a big hit. Around the time of the release, De Niro was in London filming Terry Gilliam's movie Brazil and we heard through the grapevine that he wanted to meet us. He had probably been alerted to the track by our mutual PRs. We were all at home one evening watching Brookside when the payphone in the hall rang and my boyfriend Terry answered it. He came rushing into the living room yelling excitedly, Bob De Niro's on the phone and wants to speak to one of you. None of us believed him at first, but eventually he sounded convincing enough to send all three of us scuttling to the phone and huddling around the receiver. We decided Siobhan should speak, but it was pretty monosyllabic from both ends. He asked if we wanted to meet for a drink and the respective PRs took it from there which was probably for the best. Bob wasn't finished filming until later that evening, so we all rushed to the pub to spread the exciting news that we were going to meet Robert De Niro in Soho that night. 
This turned out to be a huge mistake, as all our boyfriends wanted to come, as well as some of our friends. In the end, we hatched a plan that they could come and sit in the bar, but they couldn't sit at the same table or let on that they knew us. That was really saying something read and written by my guests, uh, Sarah Dallin and Karen Woodward, otherwise known as Bananarama. It's available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And do remember to subscribe, comment, and most importantly, spread the word about this podcast. It helps us to make more. Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too. Okay. Now, there, there is a kind of pinch yourself moment, I guess it must have happened to you a number of times through your life. Being known by famous people. Well, I guess just being in situations which are just not normal. Unless, of course, your normal becomes something that is everybody else's abnormal, so you don't see it that way. I mean, I don't think we're particularly blasé about stuff, but you do get used to doing certain things and don't realise how extraordinary they are on our travels and performing in the most incredible places and meeting the most amazing people. I think we were in the Russian Tea Room in New York because it was the place to go. And um, a guy came up to us and said his daughter was a big fan and could he get an autograph? And it was Michael Caine. And we, that for me, because <laughs> I only know him from films as a, as a child yeah. and growing up, he was such an, and is such a massive mm. star. And a gentleman. Yeah, lovely, lovely, lovely. man. And um, yeah, he just, he made a so and came over to our table and it was just amazing. That was one time when I was really blown away. But you're famous yourself, so how did fame affect we you? Don't think that. Well, no, it, we never. Well, think I guess that. it's weird to walk around going, "Hey, I'm famous." But yeah. um, so, how does fame affect you, or is it, as someone once told me, it doesn't affect you; it affects everyone else around you? Yeah, I think. It, I think that for probably us, too, sounds, I think yeah. that's true. I think some people may become very starry and very. I guess it depends what level you reach, because it's you know there are various levels of stardom. But I don't know. I think. We've just always been very grounded. I, I just think that's the, our nature. No matter how big we were, that is who we are. Um, and I think the two of us, because we've grown up together, we know where we come from and all all the things we've been through. We've had no money and then loads of money. And it's it's we're just very grounded people. Did you learn anything new about each other in the process or or memories that you had lost were reignited by each other in the course of reminiscing for the book? I think we learned that there were times where we should have talked a whole lot more about how we were feeling. Right. Mm. And again, I think that that's not something we really Yeah, did, the whole is... sort of mental health issue. I mean, yeah. Karen got very depressed in, towards the end of the 80s and... For me, I I didn't know how bad it was. Because I didn't talk about it. But I knew it because my mother was very depressed for most of her life and had all sorts of issues. And it is good that people are talking about stuff now. It's one of the many things that people are now talking about that used to get brushed under the carpet or I think I didn't want to talk about it at the time really because I saw it as a sign of weakness or you know, that there was something wrong with me. If I'm, and, and, and that's just how I felt. And so therefore it manifests itself maybe in a way that Sarah wouldn't understand. And also it's very difficult because you're on a, a, a treadmill <laughs> from like mm. teenage, you're still going. It's like 10 years on and it, it's the same promotional thing. Mm. And obviously we feel very blessed and, and pleased that it went 
went well for us. But it really is, <laughs> it like, is a, you can't get off. It's like, oh, just one more thing, just one more. It's like, OK, yes, yes, You can't yes, stop yes. now just in case. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's all, and then, yeah. then they've got the added bonus of being female. So you've got all the other things that you're bombarded with and then not even given that much credit at the end of it. It sometimes feels yeah. like a... Thankless. And it was, it was, we were on a treadmill, it seemed, for yeah. years and years. And it wasn't that it wasn't fun and mm. it wasn't rewarding, but we just didn't know how to even slow it down. No. And then I got thrown off the back <laughs> and it hit the wall. And I cycled on. <laughs> yeah, she stayed on. I mean, I don't think it's particular to the music industry, no, no, it's, it's to not. all kinds of jobs. You can, you know, feel like you're stuck or you're on that wheel and, you know, you just need that time. Indeed. Uh, your next object is a book, The Moomins by Tove <laughs> Jansen. The Moomins. Yeah. For me, that just uh, represents my love of books and literature and poetry from a really, really young age. And I wanted to be a writer. And one of the highlights of my life as a very small child was going to the library with my dad and my little sister and my dad would go up the adult's end and I I would go to the children's end and take out all my books and it was the lovely polished floors, that smell of the wood and the sun coming through the big windows and you just sit there with your books. It's like an escapism and it's it's an absolute happy place. If I smell a polished floor mm, in a library, the palm it, floor. yeah, it just takes me back to that time. And you know, I did pursue journalism, and then I ended up as a songwriter. So, I mean, and I still love books. We're running out of time, but uh, it's been just so fascinating. There's no way that we can do this, and we've already touched upon one of your other objects. And that's Roxy Music, Let's Stick Together, featuring Jerry Hall. You went to a Roxy Music gig while she was still at school and, uh, mm -hmm. and and the man himself actually spoke to you, is that right? Yes, we were hanging around you outside. You bring up that T-shirt, I'll get no, really I... angry. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we didn't know any famous people, obviously, but Brian Ferry was obviously going to sound check, and he stepped out of this black limousine. And he said, hello, ladies. And we're like, oh, my God, it's Brian Ferry. It was the most exciting thing. And then we managed to sneak in to the whatever venue it was. And uh, the lights went down. There was a spotlight and hit that music. Love is the drug. And he just blew his cigarette smoke in a circle in, in a into spotlight. that spotlight. Oh it was just like, it was oh, like the coolest thing ever. Kidding me? Oh. Yeah. Oh my and I loved like Jerry Hall looked so amazing and glamorous, and it was kind of you know she she just looked like I want to have that kind of life, that glamour, creative, artistic, sophisticated, and all that. Mm. You know everything you kind of dreamed of it when you were a young girl. And Karen, if I was to say, what's the matter, you? Why are you looking so sad? I told you it's not to mention the teeth. It's not so bad. It's a nicer place. Leave it. Leave it. <laughs> that song, that song came so much later than that. Yeah, you were ahead of I your time. <laughs> I started a trend. What can I say? I still swear it didn't say that, by okay, the way. OK, for people who are thinking, what are they talking about? <laughs> what were you wearing? I was wearing, I'm, I'm disputing what it said, <laughs> but I was actually wearing some very bright... Kingfisher blue Kingfisher leggings. Kingfisher blue leggings and a 
big knotted T-shirt, which yeah. did have some sort of glitter logo. Okay. On okay. the front. But it definitely wasn't shut up your face. <laughs> mm, it's hotly disputed. There is no photographic evidence. Okay, the last thing I want to do is create beef. There's enough friction in the world as it is, so I don't want to do that over that. Um, what's next, you guys? What's what's on the what's on the bucket list? If indeed there well, is. Well, we're one? hoping we're hoping to get back to doing live shows. We've oh, really missed them this I year. Know, right? We had so many festivals booked in, and it's it's so joyous for us to go off and do the festivals with our band. You know, we're like a little family. We get off on our travels and we giggle and we, you know, then we do the shows. And I've really missed getting out in front of a live audience. And I just can't even see that we'll be able to do it next year. But we'd like to turn our book into a film or a musical or anyone out there. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Listen, thank you so much for hanging out with oh, me. This oh, thank you. Fun. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. And uh, thank we we'll look forward Thanks. to finally seeing you on a stage again, hopefully next year. Hopefully. Yes. Because of You is the wonderful new novel from Sunday Times best-selling author Dawn French. A story about motherhood and love, truth and family, told with Dawn's signature wit, warmth and humour. Eyes shut, nose pinched tightly, Minnie was counting in her head underwater. She'd done this in the bath ever since she was small. She was 18 now, but she was still no better at it. 21 elephant, 22 elephant... Seconds are elephants, or Mississippis, or mini-moos. Could she get past 30 for the first time ever? Feel like a pearl diver? Feel like she's flying? Yes, nearly. 28 elephant... Oh, no. She had to sit up and surrender. Why was she so rubbish at it? Because of You is available to download now.